This week on The Zone of Truth, Griff and I step into the realm of cosmic horror with a color out of space creature feature, recap the last bit of the show, talk to E archetypes, and of course, answer some listener questions. I'm your host, Steve, in the studio with your GM and my co-host, Griffin. Roll a will save. You're in the Zone of Truth. And we're back. Yeah, weird one tonight. Yeah, definitely. Weird day today. Yeah, I'd like to, just so the listeners are aware, like to walk through the whiplash my body has gone through today. Yeah, your body? Well, I guess both of ours, but I'd I'd like to start. (laughs) Sure. So we're recording on a Friday night, just the two of us, which I like, don't need a guest. And I woke up this morning, had an extra big cup of coffee. I recently picked up some new responsibilities at work. So very stressful day, very busy. And by the time that got done, I was like, I got to burn off some of that stress. So I'm going to go work out with you, Griff, in the home gym. Friday's deadlift day, which is a brutal day. Yeah, it hurts. It was yeah. warm in there today. No, it was real warm in there. So, so that happens to my body. Before that, I drank a Bang Energy drink, Sour Heads, four out of four wheels on the Bang Boss. Then we made massive steaks. Yeah, nearly a pound each. Yep. And now we're drinking alcohol mixed with caffeine. (laughs) Yeah. Walk us through that, Griff. What are we drinking tonight? Because we got the same thing. We're drinking a couple things, but I'll start with what we're currently sipping on. I made Zip Fizz because it's a little less caffeine than an energy drink. You know what I mean? It's kind of like the caffeine in a coffee, but it's tropical flavored. So we're drinking a tropical punch Zip Fizz full of vitamins. Mm Mm-hmm. And some water and some vodka. <laughs> so all of that behind us, I truly have no idea what the energy is going to be like for this episode. Who knows? But I mean, on deck, I think both of us have a Four loco Seltzer. Yeah. All right. So I'm rocking the blue varietal. That's blue Raz. Um, I don't think these are the ones with caffeine. These are just the regular sized cans. I don't think they can legally sell ones with caffeine anymore. I might be wrong. I think they can. They just had to knock down either the caffeine content or the ABV. ABV. I think it might have been the ABV. I mean, probably because these are 14%. And I get the grape sour. (laughs) So, man, if I'm puckering later this episode, you'll know why. You will know why. And then I have for us to split a Sam Smith oatmeal stout, Mm. which is a product of England. Usually a good chaser for a four loco sour. Hello, those of you across the pond. I don't know. Should we? We should probably do the oatmeal before we do the four loco, right? Yeah, probably. Probably. Yeah, that makes sense. I got cups for us, so we can split that at some point. Let's try and get that in before we start questions. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it's a race to the bottom, bud. Okay. Cheers. cheers. Oh boy, it's gonna be a tough race. I'm already getting shin splints. Yep. The steak sits heavy. It was a pound of steak with cream, cream spinach. And some great sweet potato fries. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. I, I have a bone to pick with the sweet potato fries. I don't know what the brand was, but not good. Uh, we'll edit it in, so we'll appropriately put them on blast. <laughs> no, we won't. They were <laughs> whack. 
All right, so let's just roll into it. Like I said, I mean, we we got a, a couple different things that I want to chat about tonight. But first, Griff, what have you been doing here? Man, this has been the most chill week I've had in a long, long time. Yes. It's been really nice. Because Brooks and Emily have been out of town. <laughs> yeah, they've been out of town, so we couldn't record anything. And I've been uh, I've been back on the Temtem game. Mm. It, it's actually, it's for those of you that don't remember, it's that Pokemon clone, but it's like a MMO. So I've been playing that on PS5. I actually got into Final Fantasy 14. Really? The MMO? Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm very early in, mm-hmm. but been pretty impressed so far, especially with the cuz I've been playing that on PS5 as well, impressed with the I guess controller controls. Yeah. Usually an MMO doesn't really operate well without a mouse and keyboard. This seemed to do pretty well. Hmm. Uh so I've been having a good time doing that. I I think I started as the Lancer class, and I'm I I can never remember the Final Fantasy race names, but I'm the half dragon, kind of like a dragonborn. That's pretty cool. Um, and yeah, it seems like it seems like it's going to be really fun. I think that's what that one has been generally well regarded. I actually think what I've heard is that it's surpassed World of Warcraft recently. No, yeah, wow, I have heard that. I actually. I don't want to bring this up because we're not going to talk about this. Unlike every Uh-oh. other Pathfinder content creator, we're not going to talk about the uh, video that was like, uh, Paizo going to get bought by Wizards of the Coast? We won't talk about that. Well, I guess I'll strike that from the uh, agenda. Okay. <laughs> but I, I saw in the comments of that stuff, I think, or on the Reddit, uh, Reddit posts or whatever, that because they were comparing it, like comparing World of Warcraft and Final Fantasy 14 and somebody was mm-hmm. like, well, actually, I think Final Fantasy 14 actually sold more than World of Warcraft this past year. Hmm, interesting. So whether or not I enjoy both games, I like World of Warcraft. I just don't currently have an active account, but uh, it's been fun. I've enjoyed that. And I've been reading some society scenarios. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I'm in season eight right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one in particular, those of you that have run Curse of the Crimson Throne might know what I'm talking about that fits Ooh. really well into the campaign. So I've been thinking about converting it. I was just about to ask why I didn't, I didn't know if, you know, oh, it's just like, for fun. It's like in, in Corvosa, it's, um, oh no, like why are you reading? And that's oh, yeah, why, yeah. because well, that's like, why I read that one. But then I kind of, one really cool thing about being Paizo partners is we have access to all of that. And I honestly haven't really. I've kind of picked and choose society scenarios in the past and I haven't really just like read through a season. So I kind of started going down the path of doing that. What are your thoughts on reading through a season? Like, does it, is it relatively cohesive? It's kind of interesting. I haven't done, I haven't read through a a ton of seasons, but Mm -hmm. at least season eight so far has been like, I I was, I was kind of surprised by the storylines that kind of go through my thoughts on it beforehand had always been, oh, it's just like a bunch of, hey, this is cool. Hey, this is cool. Or sometimes they maybe string like three things together. I think there's a whole season, it might be season five, that is leading up to the Ruby Phoenix tournament. That rocks. Which is, yeah, that's pretty cool. That, and topical. Yeah, topical. You know, Fist of the Ruby Phoenix, probably in people's hands by the time this comes out. I think so, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I recommend it. I mean, they're they're really short reads. They're like, fucking 20 pages yeah some interesting storylines that go through that's really cool man as for me i got a couple things that i've, I've been doing so 
first of all, yes, because we haven't been recording. I've been spending a lot of time next to the pool. Um, and usually this segment is about things that we can recommend to you all. And I'm going to say a pool. Don't come to my pool. <laughs> I like <laughs> the solitude. <laughs> um, yeah, that would be crossing a line. We, we'd have to have a conversation. However, there are some other things you can enjoy besides coming to my pool. I watched a movie on Netflix because we started Bestow Curse, and now I'm a big Robert Pattinson fan. Yeah. Uh-huh. Of course so, you are. I am. So I watched this movie called The Devil All the Time. Griff, has you, have you seen this I, one? I have not seen it. I've heard of it, and it looks really interesting. It, it's got Tom Holland and rocks. Robert Pattinson in it, right? Yes. Yeah. I think it has Sebastian Stan, too. Like it's. Oh, wow. I didn't know he was in yeah, it. Yeah. It's a pretty stacked cast, and... It's two and a half hours, so that kind of put me off for a while. It's been on my list. You know, these days, it's pretty difficult for me to commit to a two and a half hour movie. That's that's a pretty substantial amount of time, and it rocks. It's so good. What genre would you say it is? I would hearken it kind of to like an epic, really? if that makes that's sense. So it's it's this story that takes place on the West Virginia, Ohio border I think in the 50s and 60s, but it takes place over, you know, 15 or 20 years. It's like Tom Holland growing up. Okay. Yeah. And so like a coming of age, maybe Um, sort of basically it follows his father after his father comes back from fighting in the Pacific theater in World War Two and all of this weird stuff, these different storylines that start when his father comes home. And it keeps flashing back and forth between these different disparate storylines and Tom Holland is born. And it's about 50 minutes before Tom Holland or Robert Pattinson even show up. Wow. But when they do, it's really cool as things start coming together and Robert Pattinson fucking kills it. He plays a very terrible human. I will not be using any of that as character inspiration for <laughs> uh, Vec in Bestow Curse. However, he did a great job and it just follows all of these different stories. You don't really know how they're going to tie together and then they do tie together in really cool ways. It all wraps itself self up in a bow towards the end. Um, there's a lot of Tom Holland traveling, trying to get where he wants to be. So it does kind of have that like almost odyssey-ish feel to it in you know not the south but starting to get close to the south and um they're well off the beaten path in these in these towns it's a fantastic movie there is some surprisingly disturbing stuff in there probably nothing that i think i really would need to throw a content warning about just it's not not like an oscar Beatty type movie for as good as some of the acting is in there and as period awesome as it is they make some choices and I think it yeah. pays off really well. Okay. It kept me inter interested for two and a half hours. So props to them. Hey, that's a, that's a feat in of its own. Absolutely. Do you, have you ever told the listeners, because you just mentioned that like, I'm not using this for inspiration for Vec. Mm -hmm. You use some Robert Pattinson acting though, haven't you? Um, A little bit. So I watched The Lighthouse and I that's kind of what got my brain going about using Robert Pattinson for, for Vec. And honestly, it was just kind of because he's a rising star right now and really pretty. It's just like a, everything that I've seen him in, he kills it. And, uh, I think he has this like kind of suave raw charisma that fits the character concept really well that I wanted to put together. Yeah. I think what I was going for was a lighthouse because you and I have talked a little bit yeah. about how the lighthouse might fit in. Mm, yes. 
Lighthouse is very good. Have you, you've seen The Lighthouse, Oh, right? yeah. The Lighthouse is great. Just making sure. I, you got to watch The Lighthouse, listeners, if you want to put some of the Book 4 stuff into context, too. Yes. It's a very well-done, non-Lovecraft, Lovecraftian story, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, m- more more psychological horror-y than some of even the Lovecraft stuff, I think. It's basically just him and Willem Dafoe on an island together. Yeah, but it's fun. and wild shit ensues. <laughs> I might go back. I might actually go back and rewatch it with subtitles on. Yeah, they have very heavy accents in it. Yeah, I think it's I'm like the do bitch. That. Yes, <laughs> I had to watch the bitch with subtitles on. I couldn't do that. Also, today is the day that one of my favorite bands in the world is releasing a new record. It's called Below. It's from the band Beartooth, which I'm sure you've heard about. And Columbus I, boys have to be big fans. That's right. I It came out today. We're now recording. It's 930 at night. I have listened to the record three times today. <laughs> I mean, we listened to almost the whole thing through while we were lifting, too. We did listen to the whole thing through while we were lifting. It rocks. It's a little heavier than I expected them to go, considering... Oh, it's way heavier than some of their other stuff, honestly. Yeah, their last record, Disease, which I loved started going into the like radio or stadium rock genre and i and i really liked it but i was worried what would come next yeah like what is the progression of that it getting lighter and you know more digestible for the radio audience nope <laughs> false <laughs> now they have some very melodic awesome stuff in there so it's not saying that there's nothing on there that's radio friendly or stadium friendly but uh it goes really hard. I threw it in the Discord today. This is, you know, Beartooth heavily influenced some of the decisions that I made with my character Saw, and uh, Saw would rage to this album. Oh, yeah. Hardcore. So, Saw check will it out. rage to this album, maybe. Hmm. I got to keep my mouth shut. I can't say anything. You're under NDA. I'm under NDA. Would be cool if you could, though. Yeah, we'll leave a little teaser out there. Fantastic. All right. Well... Let's get into the meat of this episode. So first of all, we're doing a creature feature. This is the creature that actually is the color out of space, which until we started this podcast or really got to book four, I didn't realize was a creature in Pathfinder. I thought it well, was just it, a... it was created because of the HP Lovecraft story. Mm-hmm. And it was created specifically for this module. Really? Yes. I did not know that. Yes. This was Very the cool. first Lovecraftian module Besides Carrion Hill, I think may have come out before it. I'm not positive on that. Ooh, good question. I don't. I do not know. But one of the first mythos books in Pathfinder, and it yeah. actually it has the first references to many of the Elder Gods in the in the splat. Material. That rocks. I didn't. I didn't realize that it was one of the first. Although it does kind of make sense. I think Carrion Crown is what like the seventh AP. I think seventh is right. Because I read through Serpent Skull, which I believe is six. Yeah, yeah, two a year, and it was 2008, 9, 10, and then this was the first of 11, so this would be seven. Yeah, and and like one of the preambles in one of the Serpent Skull books, they're like, we're gearing up for Carrion Crown. So I know it's after that, and Serpent Skull, I think, is six. So seven makes sense. So let's talk about this creature. First, I'm going to walk the listening audience through where this creature comes from in real life here. So it comes from, this might be a big surprise to you all, an H.P. Lovecraft short story called The Color Out of Space. This was published in March of 1927, and I'm going to do a quick synopsis because this is a very, very famous H.P. Lovecraft story. In fact, he said it was his favorite one that he made. It was 
critically his best received. Yes. And he got paid like nothing to do it. This is true. In my research, I saw that, yeah, I think he made like 35 bucks or something, which was more back then, but still not a lot for a work of art that endears to this day. Yeah, a decent amount at the time, but certainly not something that you would have paid somebody for for, for something that like would be reprinted hundreds of times, you know. Also, his publisher paid him very late, and this ended his relationship with his publisher at the time, (laughs) which is funny. So, what happens in this story? The protagonist is a surveyor, that's a good time for me, from Boston, who's talking to a man called Amy Pierce. Amy Pierce is a resident of Arkham, Massachusetts, and Amy Pierce tells him this story about this nearby plot of land that was by him when he lived out there that the locals called the Blasted Heath. At one point, there was a farm with a family there. There were several people in this family, uh, but a meteorite crashed on their land and things all went to hell. The crops on the farm started to turn gray. Then they just turned to dust. Animals begin to mutate and the father's wife and son go mad. The father locks them both up in the attic. And after things progress significantly, the father ends up having to mercy kill his wife after she goes really wild. His son dies up there in the attic where they're both locked. And the townsfolk of the area start to get worried. So they round up a band of dudes to go check out this farm. When they do, all they find are these skeletons in the well and a big giant color that they can't really describe erupts from it rushing off into space they of course flee and when they come back all they find are just acres of gray dust earning the land the name the blasted heath so a really cool interesting story definitely fits into lovecraft's it's difficult to explain the horror but there are some cool inspirations behind the story so One of the fun things is this takes place in an area of land now flooded by the Quabbin Reservoir in Massachusetts. I don't know why I thought that was interesting, but I put it in. And one of the impetus things behind writing this story is H.P. Lovecraft's frustration at the time with contemporary references to aliens basically just being slightly different humans. Yeah. He really wanted to push himself and push the genre in a different direction by trying to describe and imagine something that was completely different from what you could try to imagine. Well, it's it's his classic thing, which is trying to describe the indescribable, which by doing so leaves some pieces of it vague. But I think that's such a great idea is a color that you've never seen. Yeah. Like that's just something that conceptually doesn't work. Right. You have rods and cones and you know what color, (laughs) right? (laughs) You know, every color you've ever seen if you're not colorblind, but I guess, I guess that would make the most sense to somebody that's colorblind, right? Nowadays you could Mm -hmm. be colorblind and get those glasses that let you see the full spectrum. And that's, that must be what it's like to see the color out of space. Yeah. There are some uh, really cool touching videos of of people putting those glasses on in line and they and they cry because they're so happy i imagine if you saw this you'd cry for other reasons but some of the other fun things i found about this story uh this was heavily inspired by the radium girls the girls in the old radium factories and some of the deformities that started happening to the cattle i mean this was a very well-reported thing at the time 
Things that happen to the cattle and the farmer's family are described very similarly to some of the uh, really, really horrible things that were happening to these girls that worked in radium factories and like licked radium utensils to or brushes where they would use to apply radium and their like mouths would dissolve and stuff. So I thought that was really interesting because I've been researching radioactivity for other things. Uh, Listen to the podcast on the uh, Patreon. You might know what I'm talking about. (laughs) However... This story was adapted to film four times. Most recently, the Nicolas Cage-fronted 2019 version. Some fun facts about that movie, too. It was produced by Elijah Wood. did not production know that. Company. Did you, I didn't realize how much of a horror buff Elijah Wood was. Neither did I. I honestly didn't know that until I was researching yeah, this. Yeah, you, you do that, and then like he's the psycho serial killer in Sin City and stuff. Like oh, He really likes true. that kind of dark... It's weird. It's like definitely mm-hmm. a departure from where he had been, but he's been in, I mean, he's, I think he's helmed, I forget what the name of the horror film that he helmed as like the main baddie was. I don't know, but, but we should watch yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I remember watching it once and he's kind of a, li- a little bit of a twisted dude in, in some of those projects he's worked on. Yeah. And he's, he's in some weird shit. Right. Guns yeah. Akimbo and then uh, there's some other weird stuff he's going on. But also a fun fact about that movie, it was the first film directed by Richard Stanley since uh, Richard Stanley tried to direct The Island of Dr. Moreau, which is what I talked about, (laughs) which is what I talked about last Zone of Truth. Yeah, I was shocked. It was the the director that got fired from Dr. Moreau comes back two dozen years later. With Color Out of Space. This movie. And honestly, this was a good movie. It rocked. I know we've we talked about it previously on on a on a much older zone of truth, but I really thoroughly enjoyed Color Out of Space, the Nicolas Cage version. A couple more fun facts: This inspired Annihilation, the Jeff Vandermeer 2014 novel, which ended up being a movie that was starred there uh, that starred Natalie Portman. I love that book and the movie. And also, I thought this would be a fun thing for you, Griffin. Stephen King has come out and said that the Tommyknockers was inspired by this. So, did you know? Probably not. The Tommyknockers was the first Stephen King book I ever read. And I didn't know that, but that makes sense. To this day, it is one of my favorite. It gets a lot of flack. It's not necessarily one of his best works. I think it's it has its moments, but as you know, as like an eleven year old reading it, I mean, the shit fucking slapped. It was you know, obviously as a kid, didn't know anything about H.P. Lovecraft. Was mm-hmm. Like the concepts in that where like the people slowly like mutate and like are turning into these alien creatures still have like human desires yeah, and still want to like, you know, have relationships and stuff with other humans. And like there's one guy in the Tommyknockers that has this metal plate in his head from an accident he had that staves off the radiation. It's like a signal coming yeah. out of this like crash ship that's causing kind of a similar thing to what happens with Color Out of Space but he's immune because of this thing in his head. I love that. And he's just dealing with a town that's like slowly devolving into these like alien mutated creatures. And it gets pretty fucked. I mean, there's like some mutilated messed up stuff in there. I don't know when I'll have time to read it, but you're kind of making me want to read it now. I'll tell you now, like going into it, it's not even in the top 50% of Stephen King stuff. Well, I've, I've, I've read some bottom 50% yeah. Stephen King stuff. And I feel like even bottom 50% Stephen King stuff is still pretty entertaining. And I think, I think I have, I have part nostalgia, but also part like, you know, it was, the, it was what 
drew me into Stephen King's work mm-hmm. was the Tommyknockers. And honestly, like, I'm not a huge sci-fi guy, but I loved the alien slant of the whole thing. It was like, mm-hmm. there were just some, like, mind control-esque stuff that I tried to, like, work in with Matumbe when we dealt with, like, yeah. Matumbe getting, like, getting the influence from the color out of space, and which isn't necessarily a part of H.P. Lovecraft's original thing, but was certainly a part of the Tommyknockers. Like, you have this urge to do certain things that, like, goes against all logic. Have you either either read the book Annihilation or seen the movie? Uh Uh-uh. Dude. I should, yeah. Yeah. The book is only about 200 pages long. You could bang it out in an afternoon if you were really vicious. But I just rewatched the movie within the last week, and I really like it. It's it's good. And it's very thematic with what we've been doing lately. So... Just a bunch of really cool stuff surrounding Color Out of Space. I think I might go back and actually reread the story, enjoy it, and maybe get to that Tommy Knocker some point. But before I do that, I want to hear all about this creature that we fought, Griff. Give it to me. <laughs> so this creature is a CR-10 creature as written in the book. I leveled you guys up early, and so I, I beefed it a little bit in the in the actual combat. There's some stuff that like it gets once per day that I extended. There's... I didn't go full advanced template, but I took pieces of the advanced template for it. Just to, yeah. I wanted to make it like this credible threat because especially like Matube had been dealing with the effects of it for several episodes, like 10 episodes. Yeah. <laughs> he had been dealing with like, you know, that stuff isn't really in there. Like the well isn't in there, but I, I knew that would be a great tie in with the actual story. And I thought that would give some people like some hints as to what's going on. It's a fun little Easter egg if you know your Colorado space story. Yeah. And uh, and so I added in like the uh, there certainly is an aura where you can't voluntarily leave, mm-hmm. but like the stuff like your eyebrows crumbling and yeah. stuff was I just thought really fucked with you a little bit. I mean, it's kind of like what the hell is going on and like nothing, no heel checks, nothing can figure seem to figure this out. And then when I finally see it, I can't really figure it out. It's tough to do with mm-hmm. a character that has such high knowledges like Matumbe does, but I thought it was warranted to give this creature like a 20 plus CR. So like you got a couple things, but you couldn't like blow away the knowledge check on it, you know? Yeah, I think I rolled really well, if I remember, on the knowledge check against this creature. And even still, it was I only got a few pieces. Yeah, I think you got like two couple. things in the combat. But as written, it's a huge ooze. It's got a blind sense, which makes sense as an ooze, and it's got this aura of lassitude. So creatures within 300 feet of the color out of space, even when the color is hiding within a solid object, must succeed at a will save or become overwhelmed with listlessness and ennui. When under this effect, the creature takes a minus four penalty on all will saving throws and doesn't willingly travel farther than a mile from the area where it failed its saving throw against the color's aura of lassitude. You need break enchantment to end the effect, or you could forcibly remove the victim from the aura. Every 24 hours, you get a new save. Once you save, you're immune to the color's aura, but you looking down the well had you right at the edge of that aura, Mm -hmm. and then you guys like being at the end of the tunnel had you right at the edge of that aura. It's got a disintegrating touch, so it it works very similar to the spell disintegrate, believe it or not. Ooh. It's a fortitude saved to half the damage, but it's a touch attack that deals 66 or 12d6 on a vital strike. Force damage. 
And if you're reduced to zero hit points, you need a fortitude save or you turn to a pile of fine ash. So that's particularly bad because if any of you remember how we ended that fight, Eclipse and Matumbe were definitely in single digits and I don't think Air Bear was far behind. Any of us were one hit away from a fort save or ash. Yeah, and you got nothing at level 10, at least right now. I think you need a couple levels for your cleric to be able to bring Ash back. Yep. <laughs> and then it's got this feed ability, which is normally a once per day that I allowed it to use a couple times. And I was kind of like, hey, I'm going to I'm going to use this multiple times, but I'm not going to go wild with it. As you kind of saw, like, I think I used it two or three times on Eclipse and once or twice on Matumbe. But it is as a four round action, it can feed on a single creature color needs to have line of sight and be with 300 feet feeding on a person causes a will save which you guys are all like suffering in the will save department Mm -hmm. and um they take 1d4 points of charisma drain and 1d4 points of constitution drain and a creature whose constitution score is drained to zero crumbles to dust creature whose charisma score is drained to zero gains the color blighted template and is immune to further drain. So this is what happened to Joy. Yes. And I'm not sure if we're there yet, but I definitely want to talk about that template because it seems to, at least when I was looking at the creature stat block briefly on PFSRD, it looked like it maybe came from this creature. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. It certainly did. Uh, The only other things I'll bring up is it's got spell resistance. It's got a lot of immunities man and you guys you guys found that out mm-hmm. acid cold fire mind affecting it's got ooze traits immune to poison and sonic and it's incorporeal which is really hard to deal with and it's not undead which is doubly hard to deal with because, incorporeal ooze yeah thanks greg vaughn it's got a perfect 50 foot fly speed 15 foot reach it's brutal i mean it's a brutal thing and i and i buffed it a little bit so it was really meant to be a mid-book boss. It was. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think it lived up to that, certainly. But let's talk a little bit about the color-blighted template. The color-blighted template is a uh, CR plus zero. Creature's ability score suffers drain as a result of being fed upon by the color out of space. When it gains the template, its score that was drained to zero raises to one and no other ability scores are altered. In order to remove the template, you need to restore all the drained ability scores to normal. And as long as the creature suffers this template, it becomes strangely aggressive towards creatures that do not exude the colors of a color out of space and gains a plus one bonus on attack rolls and weapon damage rolls against such targets. Every 24 hours, a creature suffering from this template must make a DC 12 fortitude save to resist crumbling into fine white ash. That's basically all it does. Oof. And and it makes you kind of emit that weird glow that uh, Joy was emitting, just like a, a strange, almost radioactive look. It's very cool. And encountering somebody with that template before seeing the color out of space really put the fear of God into us. Maybe not necessarily that it scared us that we were going to die, but seeing someone just reduced to this blabbering psychotic we got a really strong reaction to that episode which i wasn't expecting 
Yes. Like a lot of people thought that was really fucked up. It is. It, it is. It, it, it is, but it, is. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't hit feel with like me in the moment. As much. Yeah. yeah. For me in the moment, it really didn't, it didn't feel that it was certainly meant to be creepy, but it didn't feel that awful. But mm-hmm. I mean, we got a ton of listeners that were like, wow, like I couldn't, you know. Hey, and, and also big props to Emily for her role play with that, yeah, with that character yeah. and then making the character decision to really go down there and check her baby when everybody else at the table's like, maybe don't do that. Just leave her the fuck alone. Yeah. Something wrong with her. But, you know, play the character and uh, you, you get some really good interaction because we did. It's, it's really, really interesting cool. that Emily has the character that she's built because there was just a lot of, there still is, but there was a lot of opportunity to kind of play on her character's heartstrings yeah and i think you know she's done a great job in role-playing how her character would act in those scenarios but it's certainly like i mean fuck there's a lot of children in danger here like i imagine that's not gonna change well it's certainly not a theme of the future books (laughs) i will say it's like it's really a thing here and as you know as the story of the Omarshers and stuff gets revealed, it makes sense why there's such an emphasis on that. But yeah, it's just really tough to have a character that's so, I won't say obsessed, but is, is stands for protecting children and like having that way on that character is, has been really nice role play. I think it's cool because as we came into this podcast, like it was very clear that book four was going to be Emily's book. Mm-hmm. Lyra is kind of projected out to be very important in this specific book. And we are getting taken away from the party the way she that she did. We were all kind of wondering, oh, is that not going to happen? I, I think everybody knows where I'm going with this. But that Emily built this character, probably not really knowing that it would tie into book four the way that it does, is kind of a cool thing that it worked the way out it did, so... Okay. Yeah, I, th- I thought it would definitely play in with having her character connected to Lyra in some way mm-hmm. and like caring about her still as like having known her from a child. Yeah. But then all of the other stuff that Emily just kind of wrote in about her backstory fit really well with book four. Great, man. Well, is there anything else you wanted to talk about with this creature or do we want to just move into more general book four stuff? Because we do have some catching up to do. Yeah, I think we should just move into the book four stuff. I mean, honestly, if you want to know the changes I made to the creature, it's that feedability more than once per day. Uh, feedability was a standard action instead of a full round. And I gave it the advanced template in terms of AC and its save DCs. Oh, as well as it, I max its HP. <laughs> uh, naturally. Naturally, you have to do that. Naturally. All right, so... Let's start there at the color out of space fight. So fight happens. Everybody survives. Cool. We've talked about it plenty. Then the I think it would have been interesting if you spent the time on that force projector. You think so? Yeah, I do. I just kind of. So I basically said it as if you spend three consecutive rounds on the thing, mm-hmm. you can limit it to that room, which right. it can't which... escape. Uh, that's That's one thing I didn't mention. It is vulnerable to force effects. Right. And that force leash, it can escape from. So when that's being projected out of there, if you just tighten the reins, it can't really do anything. That may be fair, but 
with our characters, even if they didn't know it, suffering from not being able to leave. Yeah. I don't know that I would make the leap that just lashing this thing down would be for the best. Yeah, I think honestly it would have been on Freya to get you guys like out of that space then. But regardless, we fought color out of space. We won. The party returned to Croons while dealing with our madnesses. Again, that's an episode that we got a whole bunch of good feedback from the librarian <laughs> the, episode. The first 30 minutes, I was like, okay, this is, bit is going on. And then I was just like, all right, I'll just fucking uh, lean yeah. into this. <laughs> I'm just going to lean into that. We got a lot of fun comments that like, wow, after like almost 150 episodes, you guys can still just have fun. Yeah, yeah well, we can. It's a game. It was fun. So yeah, the librarian enjoys stuff really tickled my heart. They were gone too early, you know, but that's what happens when you have a cleric in the party. She fixes things. Kobach, see that Kroon's in a bit of trouble. Seems that uh, Mayor Greedo and the baby were taken from him by some scum or whomever. And the whole crew plus Kroon heads out to the lake to investigate the turn rocks because that's where they're headed. Hop into the diving bell, start going under the water croons blowing air through the pipe and we fought the devilfish slash gutaki which is a very cool creature a creature we almost creature featured instead of color out of space but color out of space is too cool Can't yeah do i mean that that thing's just cool because it's like not they're not in lake and Carthen. they right. worship dagon but they're like in the crushing depths of the arcadian ocean and so it had to go through a portal to get here had to use its sorcerer bloodline to be able to survive in shallow water. Yeah. Which 400 feet down is considered shallow water for this creature. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but these were described as creatures that like fight aboliths. Yes. And I could talk about that for a long time. That seems really cool. Aboliths themselves are fascinating. Who knows? Maybe that is something we will talk about at some point, but there is some cool stuff surrounding them. That was an interesting encounter. And we have a question coming up that, will prompt us to speak more about that. But then we have some scum with brains exposed. Yeah, very, I mean, just foreboding of what's to come. Still haven't quite figured that out because we fought scum without brains exposed. Now we have some scum with brains exposed. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? What's going on? They're being controlled for some reason, but to what end? Not sure. Well, I mean, you had a big old fight with a Nethal Goo, another type of alien, you know, yeah, our bear fought the Nethalgu, and, and so you know there are alien creatures about mm-hmm. what they might be doing with these scum at the bottom of Lake and Carthen is interesting, to say the least. Yes, and looking forward to learning more about that because it's wild. What are they guarding? They're guarding Odagunga. Odagunga. <laughs> Everybody loves Oh, no, that. Oh, no, Gunga. <laughs> and the last thing that I think the listeners hear about to catch them up to where we are when this episode drops is that we have these creepy tree creatures that attack. And, uh, Yang Thieves. We've recorded ahead a little bit. That's a fun fight. I, will that fight be out, you think? No, I, I think I looked at the schedule and the episode ending with them coming up to attack us, I think is the last episode. Didn't that just come out? No. Oh, no, Gunga just came out. Yeah, and they came up to attack you. Oh, yeah. So the episode after that is no, the doesn't come out fight. Nice. Oh, yeah. We can talk about that, though. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yankees are cool. Yankees, wild. They're part of the Dominion of the Black, which gets mentioned at the end of this episode. Yes. <laughs> the end of the latest episode. And fuck, guys, we've gone off book, <laughs> but in the best way. 
Yes. What was supposed to be in this room? Because I, I know you told me. Yeah, there were some, some dimensional shamblers that were supposed to be in here. Uh, those of you that are GMing Carrying Crown are going to find that I've completely changed this dungeon. Uh, not in structure, but just in enemies and kind of thematic, I guess, what what's going on. Mm-hmm. There's two factions. There's the Dominion of the Black and the Cult of the Old Ones, and I flipped them. So mm-hmm. I guess beware for Iron Gods book four spoilers. <laughs> kind of, not really, but yeah, maybe thematically. Thematically, I yeah. don't know. I haven't read through Iron Gods, so I, I wouldn't know. But but yeah, I, I flipped those around because I think this is far more interesting. And also, we introduced Nethal Goo in book one. Yes. So why not? Good stuff, man. So at this point, I want to introduce the listener question. Uh-huh. This comes from Krusty Cross. Oh. Uh, well, he's not really a listener anymore. I mean, I guess he's a listener, but... Maybe he does. So, for the recent episodes that will have been released when this Zone of Truth drops, we just figured out includes the Hank 3 uh, fight, did Griff have any concerns about danger slash encounters in the story? Underwater combat is notoriously treacherous. Yeah, the Devilfish fight slash Gutaki, there was a lot of uh, little risers on the board to mark depth and everybody Very swimming around. Very 3D fight, yeah. Um, when we do that, uh, you usually give us the courtesy a couple days beforehand of, hey, brush up on your underwater combat. Yeah, like have those up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I wasn't really worried about the underwater combat stuff. I think the part, I mean, as you listened to, the party was pretty damn well prepared for that. Honestly, yeah. I think you guys are more prepared for more underwater stuff than is actually in this book. <laughs> Overprepared. Yeah. I mean, we we had the two underwater combats, and then you enter this, you enter Odagunga, yep. and you're in air again. <laughs> There's not water. So I think my concern is less something like the underwater combat and more just the fact that we are entering a dungeon relatively low on healing because we've kind of burned up all if not most of our healing wands and that basically just puts our healing at what Freya can pump out and if we have several more encounters to go that's dangerous Oh yeah, because if she needs to sling spells then that eats up spontaneous casting healing that we could have used. It's going to be tough too because she has the best buff spells of all of you too. Yes. And so it's like how do we survive this combat? Through uh, our righteous might or whatever we're getting from Freya. Uh, but how do we survive afterwards? Well, from the channels and the cure serious and stuff that she can throw out. Yes. She, you can't really have both. And we have had a vicar fight and we have had a color out of space fight. Those are both extremely difficult bosses, or at least I felt they were. And we have had already a couple, the devil fish fight. We've had exposed brain scum fight. Then we had the gang thief fight. And I think we have several more to go before the bookender boss. It is the bookender boss, right? This is the final dungeon. Great. Well, so whatever that is, you know, as written, should be more powerful than the other bosses we fought, which were difficult to begin with. So resources are going to be low. Healing is going to be in short supply. And we haven't even faced the biggest thing with a few more whittle me down encounters to go. I'm going on the record. I'm worried. Yeah, I I understand being worried. Be more worried. I balance this myself. So <laughs> be, yep. be even more worried. I'm not a game designer. <laughs> uh, I'm a man on the edge. Oh. No, I, I think I think I have very well 
at least in my opinion, balanced this dungeon with a lot of things in mind, with a lot of items in mind that are, you know, are going to be useful, going to be powerful. So, yes, I understand that fear. And yeah, probably, I mean, it's tough. There's nowhere to shop, but it's it's a bad situation when you're running low on your Cure Light Wounds wand. I will, I will say, however, though, that as worried as I am, this is my favorite thing about Pathfinder is going through a dungeon or repeated encounters where you really need to live encounter to encounter and resources are low and spells are running out and all of that kind of stuff is happening because the tension is always miles high and every move counts and you have to be smart and every die roll counts. This is this is where I have the most enjoyment, even if it is also where I have the most stress. I honestly think I the last it. time we were here was the Schloss. I don't think I disagree with that. I mean, like, I don't disagree. There with have that. been moments no, yeah. in this book, but really book three, it felt like there were a lot of big encounters in a day. And there was some stuff in Feldgrau where don't get me wrong, like mm-hmm. it was a rolling encounter over a night and that was tough. But that was kind of like we also had, yeah. three encounters and a bunch of allies. Yeah, we had we had a full Avengers squad for that. Mm-hmm. And here it's like it's so isolating. Like the fact yeah. that there are thousands of tons of water between you and anything else yeah. and you're down here in a place that nobody knows about. What are you going to do? Sleep in the dungeon? I mean, mechanically, you might be able to, but would your character do that? No. Get the fuck out of here. Think Horace Croon's staying up there overnight? No, he's not shit the to waves. Do. Yeah. I mean, it just he's got just manning it, manning a ship. Yeah. For that long. It's difficult he's by an himself. Elderly man. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> it's uh it's a crazy situation to be in. And and this is no slight to Greg Vaughn because I've used his encounter design and just tweaked it to fit the story that I'm trying to tell. But I mean, this is a crazy dungeon. I can't wait. I can't wait to see how it turns out. And I think the listeners are are really going to appreciate the next few episodes. We are maybe two or three recorded beyond what we'll have released already. They're all bangers, dude. They're all bangers. One of my favorite moments for your character. That's all I will spoil. Mm, Yes. So cool. Yes. Excited for it to come out. I'm really excited to see what people have to say, but that's all we can say for now, Griffin. I think it's time to start talking about something else. Yeah, why don't we? So as Bestow Curse takes off, I want to spend more time on this podcast, The Zone of Truth, talking about 2E stuff. Because I think that's really important for some of our listeners who either aren't sold on the system or are taking the plunge with us and maybe aren't as brushed up on some of the finer points of the system that you might want to be if you're listening along to a 2E show. So the first thing that I want to talk about in our like 2E spotlight is doing a little 2E archetypes for dummies because it's very different than how Pathfinder 1E treats archetypes. Yeah. And I think in a good way, uh, maybe. I think it's there's, there's think some it, things that are good. It's certainly that, up for uh, debate, I, don't know. I think. But yeah, I think it's elegant. It's elegant, but it's also something that our listeners are just going to have to fucking deal with because all of us get a free archetype. So yeah. we need to talk about what that means and how this is going to shape characters. So let's set the baseline here. So 1E archetypes. Basically, your class that you maybe want to take an archetype in has very specific things that change very specific 
mechanics that are built into your character. Yeah, all archetypes in 1E are class archetypes. So in order to take an archetype, you have to be that class. And what they do is they change certain aspects of your class. So they change how your class progresses. They swap out features for other features. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they go so far as to change your main casting stat or to give you abilities from another class. I think Matumbe is a great example of this. Inquisitor is a wisdom-based class. Matumbe is intelligence-based because of his archetype. Inquisitor is a spontaneous caster. uh, Matumbe is not. Matumbe is a prepared caster. (laughs) Yes. So... That's a really good example of something where the archetype kind of completely rewrites the class with keeping some of the core aspects. Very different from 2E. So how do archetypes work in 2E? Archetypes in 2E are not restricted by your initial class. Instead, at second level, you can replace the class feat that you gain with the baseline archetype dedication feat. From there on out, you are able to select archetype feats in place of your standard class feats. So if you wanted to take, for example, the dandy archetype, that's not tied to just one class. Any class in the game can have the dandy archetype. Yeah, and in 2E, most archetypes have that two like level two dedication some require higher Mm buy-in they've replaced some of the prestige classes in that way with archetypes or dedications however you want to call them but most of them have some sort of well i think all of them technically have some sort of buy-in so it's like you need to be trained in a skill or you need to have Mm -hmm. at least 14 charisma or certain things like that that make your character a little bit slanted towards that dedication already so that when you take it You're not taking something that's completely out of left field. Yeah, which I think is very fair. Mm -hmm. You don't want to give players the opportunity to like shoot themselves in the foot if they're not ready for it or they don't know what they're doing. So another thing that I think is really interesting about archetypes is in 2E is that they effectively replace multi-classing. Yeah. Again, in the Matumbe situation, you have eight levels of Inquisitor and then I took two levels in Investigator. Matumbe in 2E, although the Inquisitor doesn't exist as a class in 2E, would look Damn like... Parcel, give us the Inquisitor. I know. Everyone is asking for it. Matumbe in 2E, at the same level, would be a 10th level Inquisitor with the dedication feat for Investigator, the archetype. Because you would have to do that. Yeah, you'd take your Inquisitor dedication and eventually get your inspiration. Yes. And so... You don't truly have this swing from one class to the other. You continue leveling up your primary class, but you maybe sacrifice some of the feats or cool stuff that your class might get in exchange for some feats or other cool stuff the other class would get or just the archetype. So there's some discussion around that. You know, like like you said, Griff, it may be a little divisive between different players, but it is elegant. I think it's pretty cool. It's actually something very interesting about specifically the multi-class dedications, which are the ones where it's like a dedication into another full class. Mm -hmm. You can take up to half your level in feet levels from that class. So it really like it gates you. It kind of slows your progression in that archetype in a way that's like really digestible. And I really like it. it, You know, when you're level eight, you can take a level four feet and whatever you have a dedication in. And I think the free archetype system 
really creates characters that are a lot more similar to the archetypes in Pathfinder, where you're kind of changing core things about your character without giving up too much of what that class is. Mm -hmm. I think the regular archetype system, while still really cool, is a lot of like give and take. It's yes. like, okay, well, you're a lot less of a fighter if you're going to be taking a bunch of wizard feats for all of your even levels. Yeah, I would say the standard archetype rules in 2E, you would want to be very careful about what you take as an archetype. You can't maybe get as crazy with it as mix and match. Mm -hmm. And so the free archetype, the way that works, this comes from the Game Mastery Guide, that source book. I'm just going to read this verbatim because I don't think I could put it better. The only difference between a normal character and a free archetype character is that the character receives an extra class feat at second level and every even level thereafter that they can use only for archetype feats. So basically, you just get extra feats and you can use those on archetypes. Pretty simple. Yeah. That's all there is to it. That is all there is to it. And the system is so plug and play. The archetype system is so plug and play. The free archetype system is so plug and play. I love how modular the system is. It really, I don't know what part of me, it, it really just makes sense to me. Yes. And I will say now, though I won't reveal it, I have done some building around. I have picked my free archetype for Vec and I built it out, took him to second level. Not, not that we're there yet in the show, but I just wanted to kind of play with it and mm -hmm. see where I wanted to go before we got to second level. And I fell in love with the way that he opens up at second level because of the free archetype system. Yeah, it definitely, it just makes your character broad. Doesn't necessarily make them more powerful, but just makes them feel like they can handle a lot more situations. Absolutely. So I think to kind of give it a, an example of how this works and, and maybe something that we really love about archetypes in 2E, what Griffin and I wanted to do today was do a little bit of a deep dive into a specific archetype. And the one that we picked from the Advanced Player's Guide is called the Marshal. God, I love this. This is one of the best written archetypes the, in the Advanced Player's Guide. This one popped out to me immediately as I was reading through this. I know you have a lot of hype around this. I think I've played a Marshall to eighth level. Awesome. I did not know that. Yeah. I really like the way it seems like the archetype was written with a really good understanding of like the three action economy mm -hmm. and what you can do and how the system works. So if you don't mind, Griff, I want to read the splat text about Marshalls. Get then, into it. And then if you want to take points on some of like the cool stuff that they can do because you've played it before, I think that would work really well. So, marshals are leaders first and foremost. Marshals can come from any class or background, though they all share a willingness to sacrifice their own glory for the greater good of the team. Some marshals lead from the front, sword and shield raised, while others may call instructions and encouragements from the rear, while providing allied spellcasters with skilled support. Regardless of their preferred method of combat, marshals' ability to bring out the best in every ally is a valuable addition to any group. I get a little flavor of like Envoy from Starfinder. Yeah. It's cool. And it's very similar in some ways. Well, tell me about it, man. The martial dedication is really cool because it is kind of like a pseudo bard. Yes. It's very similar in its encouragement and battlefield kind of management to a bard mm -hmm. without having compositions, without really incorporating spells. And they get 
a lot of cool, specific feats, specific actions that they can do with charisma skills on the battlefield that allow them to really change change their action economy for the better. And so this is one of the feats I highly recommend if you want to be a charismatic martial class. Mm-hmm. I know, is it martial, martial? But yes. like, if you want to be a fighter that has some charisma, this is a really cool archetype to dabble in because you get a ton of different actions in combat. You get auras, you get things that allow you to buff your allies in combat without having to be a spellcaster in any way. And it's yes. really cool for a bard too, like cuz these these are not these are things that are exclusive to martial like these auras and you know they have the, the ability to reduce fear by 2 with 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 like a full round action they do they do they have a charge that gives everyone a plus 1 to attack they get attack of opportunity. This is a great option for a caster that yes. wants to be up in the front line. If you're if you're a battle oracle, take the martial dedication. You're already great at charisma, but this dedication is just so flavorful and such a great representation of taking the idea of a tactician or taking the idea of like it, it almost reminds me of the samurai in a way. Okay. Because there's there's like a you know much like the banner that a samurai would have they're they're a battle focused dedication that provides these buffs to their allies and can like go in headstrong or can stay in the back and like almost maneuver their allies in a way like give their allies benefits for doing certain things and so i think it it works really well with that initial description of them where you can really be a melee character and kind of follow that first description, go into battle, buff your allies, or you can be a caster that takes Marshall and kind of stays in the back and uses some of the feats that they have that allow them to just provide like a, a larger aura or a, uh, a kind of tailored encouragement, I guess I would call it. There's definitely some really good flexibility to the archetype. You're right. You could play it different ways based off of the different feats that you take. One of the things that I really liked is that their dedication feat, which you would get at second level here, makes you trained in either diplomacy or intimidation. Well, if you're coming in this with a high charisma character, you're probably already trained in one of those. And this says that you gain expert rank in whichever one you pick. Yeah. At second level, which I don't think happens. Really? It's all that much. It's tight. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really great for that. Uh, I mean, the, this, the only, this, this would be great for Vec. This is not what I picked for Vec. The, the, I'm going to tell you that. Yeah. But well, uh, the, issue, cool. the issue here is that, you know, the prereqs here are being trained in martial weapons as well as being trained in diplomacy and intimidation. So to get that training in martial weapons, you got to spend a feat yeah. to do that with anything other than a melee character, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit more investment for the casters to be a marshal, but... Jeez, <laughs> it's it's just some of the stuff that they can do as early, early is is really cool. Like they have stances, which I think stances are something that is mm-hmm. often overlooked in 2E. Uh, and they're just something that's like one action effective, like for your entire combat. Yeah, fantastic. There's just some really cool stuff in here. I'm looking at the rallying charge feat. That's a that's a feat six. That's the one I took. Yeah. Stride and hit in the same action, also giving all allies within 60 feet, which is a huge radius, temporary HP. 
mm-hmm. rocks. Yeah, it's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, getting attack of opportunity, like even just some flavorful stuff like the back to back. You can't be flat footed when you're next to your buddy. That's yep. so good in 2E because these these situational penalties are so bad. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. This is just a really cool archetype. Yeah, I mean, they just get they get some very unique reactions to it. It's all in all like a really well-written archetype. And I think the last feat in it is they have a couple level 14 feats. Like you're going to get feats from level two to 14 in this one. And that can't be said for every dedication. Mm-hmm. It's it's nearly a full class dedication. It kind of rocks. So when you played this archetype what did you pair it with what class i was a swashbuckler marshal oh that makes sense yeah, yeah. so i was very charismatic i was the wit mm-hmm. so i used bon mo and obviously the swashbuckler stuff uh jason of what do you do pods will <laughs> i played this oh, character yep. never heard of him never heard of him <laughs> yeah i played this character at level six when I, he he ran or actually uh with him as uh alex giordano ran us through a, no, never a heard of scenario him yeah never heard of him he ran us through a scenario where I played this character at level six, and I've played him since because it was just like really fun to play. Hell yeah. I mean, that's cool. I really like this. I feel like at some point I'm going to play this archetype. Don't know where or when, but it's just so good. I think we've talked a little bit about archetypes in 2E in general, and dedications for specific classes seem to be pretty good around the board. And then some of the archetypes that are not specific to like a multi-class dedication, uh, some of them don't quite seem to be up to snuff with some of like the multi-class dedications. This one, I think, can hold its own. This is a great class or uh, archetype. Is it it time for the... Yeah, uh, we finished the... What was this beer? It was good. It was a Samuel Smith oatmeal stout. Well, thanks for sharing that with me in return. I did buy these for Locos Hours a long time ago. Yeah, they've been around for a while. They've been taking up space in your fridge, so I'm going to start this nonsense. One thing that's interesting that I hear a lot of people do with the free archetype rules, which I'm considering just doing for Bestow Curse, is that the levels in your free archetype don't preclude you from taking a archetype in your regular level ups. So normally, normally the way a a dedication works is that you need to take three feats in that dedication. I think it's three, two or three. And you need to do that before you can take another archetype. Jeez, don't quote me on this because I'm not perfect with my two E rules, but I think it's, you take the dedication feat and then I think it's two additional. Yes. So three total. Yes. So normally that's, that's the way it works. But the free archetype rules kind of throw a weird angle into that because you're getting the stuff for free. And because a lot of times, like, people are like, well, what if I wanted to do a, like, a Eldritch Archer that only starts at level six? Am I just, like, wasting feats? That's a good question. And it's like, no, you can take another dedication if you want. You can dip into it if you want. Or you can take a dedication with your normal feats. The first dedication you take, you do not have to make that requirement hmm. is is kind of the rule that a lot of people use. And I think that I will use is like if you wanted to take the witch dedication at level one and then immediately a level four wanted to take the martial dedication, 
As long as you meet the requirements, you can. And then you can keep your which you can expand on your which one later with your free archetype feats, or you can use a regular feat to advance one or the other. It's kind of like a plug and play. I appreciate the olive branch that you're extending to me, but uh, too complicated. <laughs> too complicated. Uh, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna stay simple. Essentially, what it means is like if you if you took an archetype at level two, if you took a dedication at level two, then the earliest you could take another one is level eight, mm-hmm. because of that three feet requirement. Yeah. What I'm saying is like you could take the archer dedication at level two, take an archer feat at level four. And then take the Eldritch Archer dedication at level six if you wanted to. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So hmm. just for the first one, ignoring that prereq. Well, maybe we'll see if somebody plays it out that way. That'd be yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, we'll see. That, that would get a unique character. I'll tell you that oh, right now. For sure. Absolutely. Triple Any- dedicated at level six. Oof, too much. Uh, anything else you wanted to talk about archetypes before we move into the uh, couple listener questions? That we can no, I there. just think they're really cool. Me too. Well, you know what, Griff? I, I had a lot of fun talking about archetypes. I think this is something that we're probably going to want to continue doing as we get into more and more bestow curse and learn more about the system. Maybe we have a, a session where we talk about downtime activities or exploration mode or something. But I think those are important things that we're not in Pathfinder 1E that for a good chunk of our listening audience, you know, might be fun to talk about. Yeah, man. So without further ado... We're going to start heading towards the end of this episode, but I can't wrap it up without doing some listener questions. Hells yeah. And we got a couple fun ones today. Nothing nothing too bad. So this one comes from 10 Lawn Gnomes. Good dude. You might know him as Eric. He's a good friend of ours. His question is, what cantrip would you like to have in real life? And then he specifies, can only pick one. So don't try to take two, Griff. Don't do it. When I when I think about the relative power level of them mm-hmm. in real life, I think something like a stabilize would be just ungodly powerful. Like if if you could if you could stabilize like critical condition patients, that kind of thing. I wouldn't get a medical degree, and I'd be the best doctor in the world, right? Like that almost that puts you on like a Jesus level, <laughs> like well. Healing people. So I would I, I would I go think, with stabilize. I think at that point with stabilize, you just put somebody on life support. I guess <laughs> I guess maybe, but like anyone that's bleeding out, fixed. Yeah, that's true. Like, they could just like plop a chair down in a trauma ward and have you sit in it. Like gunshot wound, fixed. Stabilize. Stable. Yeah. I like, think that's th- incredibly powerful. I, I think that's really good. Um oh, no, my, mine sounds bad now. <laughs> I wanted the telekinetic hand. <laughs> Or prestidigitation. I think telekinetic hand is is dope as shit, though. And prestidigitation yeah. is like, honestly, that's such a great one on a personal care level. It's got a lot of utility to it. Mm-hmm. You can flavor things. You can clean yourself. You can do all the stuff that prestidigitation does. You make your life way better with prestidigitation. I'll tell you yes. that. I guess you won't be saving any lives, like right. stabilize. But I'm hoping that like good. with the stabilize, I can have renowned or quality of life to the level where like mm. I could maybe make myself as comfortable as I would with prestidigitation while doing some good. Now I haven't played a whole ton of arcane casters. Is stabilize an orison and not a cantrip. Ooh, I guess you might be Ooh. right. I don't know if I guess maybe I don't know if want you know Eric was trying to get that specific with it. I'm just saying. Alright, well then you press the digitate. There you go. 
There are a couple other goofy ones in Give there myself too, a mage but... handy. Hmm, well, you know, five pounds or less. Five pounds or less. You're pushing easily it. Easily below. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, there's some good ones. Um, I'm trying to think. I had the whole list up earlier. I think like messages on there, maybe. Resist resistance. You get a plus one resistance. Bonus. I'm just like kind of curious what resistance would do in real life, you know? You know, maybe if you're uh, about to take a shot or something, resistance on yourself for your fort save. Is purify yeah, food good. and drink on the cantrips? Well, it could be. It, that might be an Orson one. I think create water is. We're going to get we're create waters on a, on almost every one. I think we're going to get it roasted in the comments. Oh, should we not know which one? We should have we should have done our research. Well, the funny thing is, I did. And I, have the, <laughs> lost I, have, it. I have the list up, but it's on my laptop. And instead, I started to use the iPad today. So that's on me. Well, it's because I said I'd put the music in after. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Open close. Open that's close. A trip. <laughs> I know that for sure. See, I, I'm going to take that differently. Open clothes. Boom. Tell me more. Boom. Going around. Zabop. <laughs> oh, that blouse is wide open, baby. Mm. What happened? I don't know. I'll never tell. That button flap on your butt that you always wear with your uh, yeah, my, with your nightgown my, or whatever. My Vec branded button flap. That's right. Zabop. Zabop. Oop. Oop. Sorry. What's going on over there? All right. Other questions coming from by Sean Contart. What are your opinions on newly created deep lore monsters? Example, Slenderman or Siren Head? I don't have a ton of like specific opinions on them. I think they're incredibly creative. Yes. I mean, Marble Hornets, I remember watching the Marble Hornets stuff when they were creating Slenderman and it was honestly like one of the best YouTube channels of the time, right? And it's just like it's really that kind of storytelling is really cool. It's like the creepy pasta mm-hmm. converted to something that honestly Slenderman has now the renown of the color out of space or something. Yeah, it's when I got this question at first, I saw like, oh, Slenderman kind of gets memed sometimes. And I really particularly love the design of Siren Head. Mm-hmm. I think that's just a terrifying image to look at, although I know, know nothing about him, basically. But then I started thinking about this question and it's fun, but it makes me wonder what is getting created right now that is going to be the next Dracula or Frankenstein or something. Will people in 200 years talk about Slenderman? I don't know. Maybe maybe with Slenderman, but I mean, Slenderman got built into, you got to think about this. Like Minecraft is the most prolific probably in terms of like people buying it and and how far it spread game in the history of video games and true if it's not it's up there it's it's definitely up there i thought i thought because of like the pandemic the recent animal crossing crushed some record Uh, well i i can't imagine it's made more money than minecraft oh i'm sure it hasn't but i think just maybe volume move i don't know what i'm talking about keep going but what i'm saying is like they took they have a version of slender man in that game right really the, the ender man which is 100 percent based off of slender man and the fact that it's so popular that it can mm-hmm. be in a i think minecraft is a 
multi-billion dollar game at this point. I'm sure it is, yeah. The fact that it can it can be in media like that, a version of it, I think is a testament to how how much longevity it's going to have, which is in my opinion a decent amount. Yeah, and and besides these two examples that uh by Sean Contart, no idea who that is, mentions I was trying to think of some other ones that I know, and I'm not positive that I know a whole ton. One of the ones that came up, and I'm not particularly sure if it even falls into this category, is that story that's like floated around the internet in the last 10 or 15 years about people in Russia. They were doing some sort of sleep experiment on them to keep them awake for like Mm -hmm. two or three weeks long, and they turned into basically nasty troglodyte monsters obviously fiction but like that's a really cool story i read it and loved it and apparently it's getting turned into a movie or a tv series limited run or something i don't know but that's one that stood out to me there's an image that's associated with that that's haunting it's really creepy but like i said earlier i'm excited to see or rather would be excited to see what this all turns into I think it's like, very are we in a new golden age. Who knows? Like you, you have a ton of just unknown freelance writers that do stuff like SCPs that are all kind of like these paranormal stories. I think the first SCP was the inspiration for something in Doctor Who, like the Bleeding Angels in Doctor Who, the Weeping Angels or Weeping Angels. Yeah, I did not know that. Yeah, and the, the Weeping first Angels SCP. Are- the best modern Doctor Who bad guys. They're so fucking good. Right. And the first SCP is that creature. I did not know that. So they should sue. I legitimately, well, I legitimately think like these internet creators, just the vastness of the internet and how it's brought like creative people together or, or at least created a a stage for people to make these monsters and, and bounce these monsters off of other people has made terrifying monsters. Like, I'd love to see yeah. Slenderman in Pathfinder. You know what I mean? I wonder. Do you think? Yeah. I, I, I think it's going to happen they'll, at some point. I bet they'll eventually create something similar. Yeah. Some, like, copyright dodge. Well, I, I don't even... man. With a lot of these... Could be, like... In certain stages, obviously, there's, there's not much to worry about with copyright. Mm-hmm. People, like, give this intellectual property away for free on the internet with SCPs and that kind of thing. It's just out there. It's a thing. It's an idea. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's a shame that maybe <laughs> some of these creators don't get their due for what they've created. But but in a way, that's what might give it the most lasting power if mm-hmm. people can use it and play with it and make it cool and make it last. If Paizo picks up something like Slenderman, that would give it a lasting power that it might not have gotten. Right, and like it's not like Mary Shelley got paid every time a Frankenstein analog was created. That's true. Yeah, think of think of some of the greats. Edgar Allan Poe died broke. Yeah. H.P. Lovecraft, I think, was probably the same. Like, a lot of these At least greats, similar. <laughs> a lot of these greats die penniless so if like maybe their idea goes somewhere well that's good i guess for humanity maybe not good for them but but it's interesting that these horrific things seem to have that lasting power yeah right like something like a frankenstein had the lasting power to be a staple of modern horror even though it's it's one story from one person that i don't honestly know how popular it was when it was released but like 
You know, it's just weird to think about. I haven't talked about him for a long time on this podcast, but not all that long ago, I read the Junji Ito version of Frankenstein. Dude, <laughs> that rocked. It was. I think so some of the Junji Ito. I think I think Junji Ito is one of the best modern horror creatives out there. I saw a long thread on Twitter that I read through about why someone was breaking down Junji Ito's work and how they think that several probably dozen years in the future people are going to look at him and use his name kind of like an adjective the same way that you got edoed right well the people the same way that people talk about lovecraftian or oh it's stephen king like if you tell me something is like stephen king like i can picture it in my head Mm -hmm. yeah if you tell me something bang or main (laughs) if something's yeah if something uh is lovecraftian i kind of have an idea already what it should be like if you tell me something today, as someone who's read a lot of Junji Ito stuff, that it's this is something that's very Junji Ito-esque, I have a picture in my head of what that is. And I think that he's got some lasting power where he could be somebody who is a name a long time in the future. And that's really cool because I love him. If you've yeah. ever, if you've yeah. ever seen any of his interviews or anything, he's so humble and like, kind of cute. He's great, very humble him. guy, and like is capable of doing very cute work. Like when he did the Yan and Moo, uh, yeah, Yan and Moo, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, just a very fascinating person to think about. You know, like somebody that can come up with some of the depraved shit that he comes mm-hmm. up with is also just like a pretty, by all accounts, at least from what I've seen, down to earth, chill guy that isn't consumed by his horror persona no i uh recently rented from the library his like big art book that came out in the last year or so and it presents like a hundred different images that he's created and then at the end there's a glossary of where they came from and he puts a little note for each one and a lot of them are like yeah i didn't really like this one yeah i could have done better like the the darkness is not as dark as I would have liked it to. There's so much like self-depreciating stuff in there. Like you really get a, a good sense of who he is as an artist and a human being like, oh, he's not satisfied with his work. And maybe some of it is commercially su- successful, but like he is a humble down to earth dude. I think I think that gives some insight into like his creative process too, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you watch the evolution of his work and or you look at his comments about things, it's like, oh, well, you know, he fixed this by page 50. Right. You know, yes. he, he like he did that darkness thing. <laughs> he, he's he's also very creative in a way that is surprising to me. I, I don't maybe I just don't have the artist type brain, but there's a, a really cool story about like puppets. I don't know if you're familiar with this one, but there is a family that travels around and puts on puppet shows and there's a really creepy puppet. And the there's two brothers. The older one runs away from the family and gets really successful. And he has this house. And the younger brother ends up finding him much later in life. And the older brother has a lot of money and has set up his house in a way where him and his family are suspended by puppet strings and people in the ceiling move him around so that he doesn't have to move around himself. (laughs) Yeah, it's very creepy. It's incredibly disturbing. The story plays out in a way that's a little bit unexpected. But I read an interview that he did about that story, and it all came from hey, I draw manga, and when I do, I'm usually hunched over. And one day I thought, wouldn't it be nice if someone was in my ceiling holding my back up so I don't get hurt? (laughs) And I was like, wow, I love your creative process. That's really cool. Very cool guy. Yeah. Well, that was a 
diversion from what the question was. But yeah, I, I, I think we answered it still. I yeah. mean, I, I really think the this deep lore stuff is the next wave of, of what's going to be horror cornerstones. I mean, it can't all yeah. live. It can't all live a hundred years ago. That's right. Put Slenderman in Pathfinder, put Siren Head in Starfinder, and we're good. I feel like Luis Loza is the kind of guy that would do the maybe the Slenderman hmm. in Tui. Okay. We should we should hit him up. See yeah, we should, we should hit him up. <laughs> See if we'll do it. Yeah. All right. He's also a very nice guy. I think he might. We should get him on the show. That'd be fun. And then we'll we'll pitch him Slender Man. Yeah. We'll pitch just, him Slender. That's the whole show. Just us pitching him. Hour Slender and a half. Listen, we're gonna sit here while you make this, please. Listen, we're gonna sit here. I'm gonna have the uh, the motion picture Slender Man running in the background, and you just take what you like from that and run with it. We're gonna watch all Marvel Hornets. We're gonna get a live reaction. Mm-hmm. And you're gonna you, just build it live. Yeah, it'd be great. <laughs> well, Griff, I had a lot of fun today. I think it's probably about time to wrap it up, though. I think so too. Lately the end of these episodes i like to promote some stuff so hey if you liked our discussion about archetypes and for whatever reason you have not checked out bestow curse yet please do we've gotten a lot of positive reactions on that show and it's us like if you're listening to zone of truth 63 you clearly like who we are even if pathfinder 2e might not be the system for you i think we do it justice and really get into the characters and play it up and have just a fucking ball of a time So if you haven't checked it out yet, please do. And if you have checked it out, go ahead and rate and review us. Oh, that would be fantastic. Please, guys. I can't stress this enough. It might not sound like something that's important or, you know, maybe something that you wouldn't do, but you would be shocked. And I hate that this is true, but how important those rates and reviews are to like the algorithm of who gets exposed to our show. It's just, it's it's such early days for that show, mm-hmm. and that makes all of the the reviews, the downloads, etc., that much more important because you, it's kind of a ticking clock if you want to get on, I'll peek behind the podcasting curtain, if you want to get on like the new and noteworthy of iTunes, which would be something that would just jettison the, you know, this whole network to a whole nother level. But you need reviews and you need people downloading and you need uh, people subscribing. And if you guys could do that, you know, even if you're not on Apple Podcasts normally, if you could do that for us, that would be absolutely just, it would mean the world to us because we really want this to be successful. We've already seen some residual success from that show on HLP and new listeners coming to HLP from Bestow Curse. And that's only going to get bigger and better as the word spreads. It only will take a few moments of your time. And if you're not subscribed to the Patreon or whatever, I, I don't care. That's fine because this so like rating and reviewing. You don't have to give us a dollar. You just need to give me 90 seconds of your time. And again, if you're on Zone of Truth 63, you've already given us hundreds of hours of your time. Just give me another 90 seconds by logging on to something and just hitting five stars and reviewing. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you. I'll send you a picture of me making a kissy face at you if you if you screenshot your review at me. You know what? I'll do it too. Well, now everybody's gonna message you and not me. Okay, fine. Well, now I'm not doing it because I, you know, I, I care wow. about how you feel. Wow. I was just trying to up shoot myself a little bit, but you know, that's fine. Maybe we'll do it together. Why don't we do it together? And it makes us both feel good. Highest 
rated show on iTunes. Huh? <laughs> Got some freaks listening. All right. Well, we'd appreciate it. And we'll send you those photos. Yeah. All right. Well, Griff, I had a lot of fun tonight. We got to wrap it up and get to the rest of the party in that our Friday night is. So if there's anything you want to say to the listeners right now, please do. I just need you guys to finish your drinks because we'll see you in two weeks. Later. Later.